Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. Now my guest today is Naomi Simpson. You might have heard of a business she launched back in 2001 and it was called Red Balloon. And I'm just joking, everyone's heard of Naomi. With a background in marketing and dealing with clients who couldn't afford a service, she saw an opportunity. And that is a digital marketplace for experiences. So creating a currency for small business vendors. From a skydiving adventure to a fine dining package night for two, it's the gift of giving real life experiences. Every experience through Red Balloon directly benefits either an Aussie or a Kiwi business. After 20 years with Red Balloon, now part of a four-year-old umbrella company, Big Red Group, which, by the way, happens to include marketplace brands such as Adrenaline, Ready.com. Naomi wants to make sure someone is buying an experience from her marketplace, which includes all those brands, every second of every hour of every day of the year. It's a fantastic aspiration, and she's getting pretty close to it. Big Red Group is now the third largest marketplace in the world. Wow. What's important in this for small business owners and all you listeners as an audience is to see how someone like Naomi has formed a marketplace which actually helps small businesses market their business with scale in a way that a small business ordinarily could never afford to do it on their own. So I guess that's especially relevant coming out of the COVID period. No government help. This is private enterprise providing assistance in a collaborative way where everyone gets a drink, everybody gets their business improved, and everybody makes money. And consumers at the same time enjoy the experience. So let's get into this. Naomi, welcome to The Mentor. So great to see you again, Mark. You bet. Um, I love your red shoes. I mean, by the way, I mean, I love the red shoes because of the Wizard of Oz. Yeah. My mother's Irish, my dad was great. My mother always had these this red lipstick on, this really beautiful red lipstick. I don't know if it was beautiful or not, but I remember it as being beautiful. Um, and uh, red shoes, to me, um, are the epitome of beauty when it comes to how women, I don't want to sound like I'm being exclusive or not being inclusive, but how women dress in my own mind, in the back of my mind, how women would dress in a beautiful way, beautiful red shoes like these are. So thanks for wearing them. Well, thanks. These are an Australian brand, Louise M. I'm just going to give her a little Good plug. And why not? Because that's what we're here for is to support other businesses. Uh, she's a flight attendant and I tell you, I can do 50,000 steps in these shoes. So um, she's created them for women who are busy but still want to look fabulous. But the red shoes are actually a nod to Julie Bishop, 
and the red shoe movement, which what, is... What is that? Tell me about that. Yeah, so red shoes. So you'll notice I'm wearing a white jacket. No one's yep. ever seen me wear a white jacket No, I expect today. to be all red today. But yeah, yeah, and uh, that's also a nod to the suffragettes, which uh, Christine Holgate has called, called on women leaders. I think it's very important that um, our voices are... Uh, broadcast that our voices and our opinions are heard and listened to and that we particularly have balanced voice in the media. And um, if we look at all of the media, and there's a fabulous book called The Invisible Woman, and in uh, what we have is a default where our species is represented as a masculine. So therefore, if we look at the quantity and the quality of contribution. This is everything from movie extras, which Gina Davis did all the work and the research to find out there that is, our, There is a similarity, by the way. Yeah, our default, in, and there's more male um, parts, roles, there's more male, uh, even as extras, there's more male voices. And it's really important for us to say, look, so many woman, women are doing incredible work and we need to talk about it uh, as role models in our community. I had really, really strong role models when I was growing up and I know, know you want to talk about that, but I had incredible role models. My mum back in the 60s worked on one of the first computers in Australia. She worked in the maths department of Monash University. Her mother, had been a bookkeeper and later in her career she worked for an incredible entrepreneur by the name of Lindsay Cadamall. Now Lindsay's business was Aspect Computing and my mum used to just drag me to their work events and I would just see them and go oh yeah this is normal like this was my normal and mum just used to say things like oh honestly if Lindsay can do it you can do it you know. So how, give, give, tell me back to you I yeah. mean I really want to go down that track to be honest with you so you're like a kid, 10-year-old, like yeah, a teenager yeah. or something like that, and your mum's dragging you. So what are we talking about, the 80s or something like that? Yeah, so, yeah. so oh, thank you. I will be flattered with that. We're oh, I'm trying it. to be nice. But, like, <laughs> but I mean, I guess I guess, I guess, guess the let's, – let's call it the 70s, 80s. But, yeah. but like, even if it was the 80s. I didn't realise computer that. Computers were not a thing. It was, like, brand new. That was pretty flash. It was a, it was a big deal, and I used to be able to go to primary school with printouts from computers and go, my mum works in computing, and people were like, oh, no, she doesn't. You know, there's no such thing. But these were massive, big mainframes and she yeah. worked uh, there. In fact, back in the day she said um, there was no particular gender split in STEM at all because she said it was 50% women and 50% men. Um, you told me, like her experience, she, her you're experience in, in science, technology, et cetera, yeah. STEM, yeah. Um, that was, it was evenly split. It was evenly split. Well, even, uh, back, back, but back now it's day, not the case. No, and it was because there was a, a lot of um, roles that might have come in through administration uh, and then moved into, like my mum was a systems analyst, but uh, and she had a, a postgraduate degree in uh, computing. She was an initial member of the Computer Science of Australia, which still goes. But um, that was our normal. And, um, well, your normal. That was my normal. Yeah. And so, therefore, it was uh, a very easy pathway. So, it's important for uh, women leaders, and there's so many doing so many interesting things, to stand up so others can see uh, and to show away and be prepared to speak up, be prepared to have an opinion, and be prepared to say this isn't good enough. Well, that, that's it's. Let's just pause on this for a second because I think. Well, I have some views on it, um, and I, I do want to flesh it out a bit. Um, and it's interesting. I, I mentioned um, Dorothy out of the Wizard of Oz. Um, and what was interesting, like you know, we're talking about nineteen. That book was written in nineteen oh five. So we're talking about a period when 
you know, if you think women now don't have a big enough voice, in those days had zero voice. Um, and you know, talk about suffragettes, it's sort of those types of thoughts were only just near thoughts in those days. And yet Frank Bohm made the hero of his story and most of the main characters in that story, apart from the wizard himself, who was a fake, mm. were women, and including, the, including, including the good witch, the bad witch, etc. Mm. And, um, and Dorothy was an unsuspecting yet extraordinarily capable hero, hero in that story. And if you fast forward that to today, there is a perception that female entrepreneurs, business owners, successful females generally in business, like if you just look at business outside of everything else, have to be hard-assed, aggressive, you know, like winner-takes-all type people when in actual fact that's not the case. No. Um, it's not the case. And that's, that's the sort of perception that gets built in through some mediums and commentaries and also probably sits around society that women can be extraordinarily successful without having to be in any way, in any way like that. And men, by the way, the same. Men don't have to be hard-assed to be successful either. They can be nice people and be extraordinarily successful. Um, what do you say about the perception that to be successful you have to be a hard-ass yeah. and cast like a man? Yeah, and look, one thing I'm very um, clear on is I don't want to speak on behalf of 50% of our population. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone has their own story. Yeah. Um, but what about I, you? I guess what is most important to me in inside of that is the fact that people get to be themselves and their whole self for whoever their audience is, whoever their customer base is, whoever their colleagues are. So I guess that's kind of the point of what's going on in our conversation is let us be who we want to be um, without having to pretend to be something we're not. And look, there are, you know, there are women who are by nature aggressive. I've been called that myself. I don't know why. I think, But I'm it doesn't matter if you are, but you don't yeah. have to be that to be successful. To, absolutely not. And you're just being yourself. Yeah. And Sometimes someone pisses you off, you're going to have to, you know, stand your position. Whether that's taken as being aggressive or not is, is another matter. Yeah, you know, to be articulate is not to be aggressive. 100%. To stand up for yourself is not to be, is not aggressive. Well, what would you say to the young men then who think they have to be that way in order to be successful? In other words, they have to be the tough investment banker or the tough lawyer or... Or do the what tough people think they should yeah, do. Yeah, totally, the young men. And I think there's a really big conversation going on. And I have sons, like I've got three sons and a daughter. And so they're very lost in the conversation and I want them to be blossoming and who they need to be for community as well. And so the most important thing is that they trust their gut. Yep. And they know when they get in a group of lads and they're not comfortable with their own value set, it's the same as with women, when they're not comfortable with their value set, they have the confidence and the power to say, I'm out. This I, this doesn't feel right to me. You know, for me, the definition of success is the power to make choices, choices over your time. And to be successful as a human being is to be able to have that control over who you are, who you hang out with and where you spend your time and energy. And that includes your friendship group. So I think the tools that we can give both men and women of all ages, by the way, to say, that doesn't sit well with me and I'm out and be absolutely okay with it and support it in that choice, I think is very important. Well, do you think that's, I mean, is that what Christine Holgate did, do you think? I mean, I mean I, I'm not asking you for an in-depth opinion on it, but do you think that 
she opted out. She, she resigned mm. from. So there's there is a. a a discussion going at the moment of whether she was asked to stand aside mm. or whether she was asked to resign. And the definition of each of those is completely different. But I think one of the things that I heard really clearly was um, Christine has said, look, I don't do this for me. I do this for all of the other people who don't have a voice. Now, this Senate inquiry was based on her, let's call them her community, which is small businesses throughout Australia, have loved and adored the contribution that Australia Post has made through these deals to keep those post stores and those post offices open. You're talking and about the franchises. I'm talking it? about the franchises and the lifeblood that that represented and the outpouring of grief when you have an incredible um, leader who is delivering clear results for community uh, to all of a sudden be so if it could happen to her it could happen to anyone and that's the alarming thing and I think that's why she's really stepped into it uh, she made it really clear she's not doing this for her she's doing it for others and she said that you know she's waking up to thousands of messages of a day of people who are feeling they're not heard they're being bullied they're being harassed and they don't have an avenue for that and often when people are bullied harassed the first thing they do is step away my husband works in this space uh, he is an investigator and he works in this area of bullying bullying sexual harassment and discrimination and um, most people are completely unaware of the impact that perhaps their behaviours are having on others. It's not like a, it's a, it's a power game though. It, it is it, a power game but yeah. people feel they don't have a f voice to step up so they just step away. Yeah. But why should somebody's career be ruined um, because somebody did something or said something and in the public domain? Why, you know, she was on a trajectory to transform um, and for me in e-commerce – really important to transform the logistics of this country and it was the go a government enterprise. I mean, I mean, we should just expand on that a little bit because what's important about what just Naomi, Naomi just said was that um, e-commerce is something that the government wants, yes. everybody wants. We want digitisation of this country uh, like along with everyone else in the world. Um, small business survives better if through digitization, especially during the COVID period, um, you know, both in transactions and marketing and everything and delivery. But the thing that sits behind all this is um, what they call fulfillment. That's logistics. That's the delivery of the product when it comes to e-commerce. I mean, I can't buy something online unless someone's going to deliver it to me and that's Australia Post and others, but, yeah. but mostly Australia Post. That's probably the largest in Australia. And um, we needed, you know, post-armoured, her predecessor, we needed that to really step up, to be frank with you. We need Australia Post to step up and, yeah, and, that, and that was her game. We would be left behind as a nation. Correct. And and the fact that that was a government-owned enterprise, you know, we want assets that are producing our growth for the economy. So there's so many reasons why I think she has, um, has listened to people and said, no, I will follow this through and it's just, I know it's not about her. It's, it's I mean, unfortunately – Politics gets in the way of these and people react. Um, it's an interesting one to watch. I want to take you back to when you were a young girl watching your mum. Um, where do you get the uh, – or is this something you've accumulated? Where do you get the, uh, the courage to feel this way, to think this way, to articulate it this way, to be um, uh, part of 
the movement, mm-hmm. big part of the movement, where do you get that courage? I mean, is that – can you go back and say, well, you know what, I reckon it was my mum influenced me there or my mum put me in a position where I thought I could do anything that needed to be done. Where do you get that from? Yeah. I, I, I don't think it came from my mum at all because, I, like you, my mum would get dressed up in fabulous shoes and heels and gorgeous lipstick and i go, oh, when I, when I grow up I just sort of wear fabulous heels and lipstick and go off to work. But my father also enabled it. You know, so, you know, Dad contributed around the house. Dad's an engineer. And um, so our house ran like clockwork, you know. Dad made that. So there was definitely that enablement. So Mum wasn't working two jobs. She wasn't working at the office and then coming home and then running a household and a family as well. Um, Everybody pitched in, you know, from a very early age. We were making our own school lunches and, you know, where's my uniform wherever you left it? You know, so there was very much, it was a a family, and it takes that. So that was also my normal, watch my dad, you know, pack the dishwasher, do the dishes, put the washing on, whatever it took. So, yeah, there was no doubt that it enabled it. I didn't even know the word feminism until the female eunuch and um, Jermaine Greer and uh, it was probably my late high school years when one of my friends said, oh, I'm a feminist and I was like, yeah, I'm feminine too. She said, no, no, feminist and I I, had, I didn't even know what it was and um, I didn't really understand it and in fact the more and more that I, I was just because it was so normal to me, of course I'll, you know, my parents said go to university. I said, oh, I want to be an artist. They go, go to university, get yourself a degree uh, and then make choices so they were they it wasn't that they said you know you have to work as an economist or work as a whatever they just said it'll give you choices and if you still want to be an artist great go for it but just give yourself choices and education gives choices so they're absolutely for that it's funny you know like um you know you said something quite interesting up you never really when that person asked told you that she was a feminist and uh and uh you never really thought about it because that was normal to you because you saw it in your own family, not just from your mum, just the way that everything was equivalent within your family. In my household, my mum's Irish <laughs> and my father's Greek, and uh, similar to your house, like, you know, mate, you pulled your weight. <laughs> if you didn't pull your weight, you got to kick up the ass. What is so important is you can't see what you can't see. And there's, there's a whole theory around that. And so when middle-aged white guys say to me, they go, I'm not biased, and I go, it's because you can't see what you can't see. So I think it's really important that we tell these stories of, of, of women who stood up and said, no, this is not right and not good for society and as a result we change. And there's many of them in history and it's our job to also uncover, uncover And that's, them. I mean, there's a lot of currency in that and it's got very relevant at the moment, obviously. Um, and it, it's so relevant that, you know, we've got the whole gay thing going on at the moment. This is like not just topical, I think it's, uh, well, for me anyway, as a someone who uh, professes the importance of small business, um, puts women at the forefront of small business to me. And there's not enough of it. Um, and I don't mean women versus men. I'm just saying that there's not enough women being pushed into or having the belief in themselves to be able to get, get to run their own business, to be at the forefront of business. But that's, but that's the currency right now. What I want to do now is just flip straight back into – Naomi Simpson's younger years, you're in your 20s. If you could just go back there for a second. We've watched mum do her stuff and dad's been extraordinarily supportive as an engineer um, and you've got brothers, brothers and sisters, brother, sister. sister. And, you're, and then you decide you're in your 20s. What are you doing? Like uh, what were you doing in your 20s? What, what was your deal? What was your gig? I was very involved at university. 
and I started a uh, commerce society in our um, in our I was at University of Melbourne, and so I was very involved with that. And part of that program gave me the opportunity to have an internship in New York. So my first job out of university was with IBM in New York. And uh, forever that was on my CV and being part of IBM, which is a massive global organisation, like they teach you everything, you know, like I learnt more in my three years with IBM. They're like a university. Yeah, it's like a university and they educate, educate, educate. Uh, And and I learnt so much there and working uh, in New York. I travelled and then I went and worked in Copenhagen. And I worked for a, another computer company um, who was um, a distributor of IBM product. And so I worked with the agency there, and um, which is kind of funny because I didn't know the language, but, it was, uh, but they had vendors who were English speaking. And, you know, and I travelled and I came home in my uh, early mid-20s uh, and I got a job in a professional services firm, KPMG, and I just didn't belong. You know, working it because I've always questioned why. You know, I've always been curious and I've always asked. And so, you know, my job there was supposed to be in marketing and I was sorting out lists and databases and things like that during a merger. And, and I said, no, there's got to be a bigger, bigger, bigger gig here for me. Um, and so I spoke to somebody and said, look, I want a career in marketing. What do I do about that? And he goes, my well, first thing you've got to do is get out of professional services and go and find yourself a job as a product manager, brand manager, and go up through that ranks. So I left there, went to Ansett Airlines. I was on the team that launched um, uh, Golden Wing Frequent Flyer, was there through the pilot's dispute. I was there in Victoria um, through all of that change. Uh, and I learned so much from working in that organisation about how I didn't want to run a business. How uh, you didn't want, yeah, what not to do. What not to do. When did you sort of take that into your own environment? I mean, how well, old were you? So then I left there, I moved to Sydney. Um, Why? When I got married. So my new husband lived in Sydney and this was the early 90s and I tell you what, I wasn't going to leave a fabulous job uh, working in a really interesting industry uh, without having a job to come to in Sydney because there was a recession on in the early 90s. So he, he lived in Sydney? or He lived in Sydney. We met when he lived in Sydney and I lived in Melbourne. Right, so and you decided to come to Sydney? Yeah. So but you, you weren't going to come without a job? Yeah, no, it wasn't going to come without a job. So back in the day, we didn't used to live together. We used to just get married and I didn't move up here until about... Oh, you were down there and he was up here? Yeah. I didn't get married. I didn't move to Sydney until about nine weeks after we were married. So, and then, but did you get a job back at Ansett up here? No. Well, they offered me a job at the airport, but I wanted a career in marketing. So I got a job at Apple. So I worked wow. for Apple as, um, as, a, as a market manager uh, for small business. Uh, first of all, and then uh, publishing and graphics, which was all about small business as well. And so I. This is before um, he bought out the, uh, the the glowing red coloured, the yeah, orange yeah, coloured glowing plastic. In fact, I worked at Apple when Steve Jobs didn't. Yeah, so yeah. They, they were boring computers in those days. Well, they weren't that boring. Relatively though. speaking. But talk about from the ridiculous to the sublime in terms of being a purposeful business. And even though he wasn't there at the time, there was a, an entrepreneurial spirit throughout um, Apple. Um, and then when I had kids, I just couldn't all of a sudden be at global headquarters in Cupertino and then and I had no family around me. So I said, no, it's time to hang up a shingle. It's time to just become a freelance marketer and do that. So when I had my daughter, 
Um, I started doing that. Uh, I, I tried to work for a year and I was always racing and running and I'm going, I'm not having 20 years of this. This is not. This is for the birds. And this was back before flexible work or working from home and all the fabulous things. Um, and then being a freelancer in those days was quite difficult because it was feast or famine. I had totally. so much work. I couldn't scratch myself. Um, or, oops, I haven't got any clients now. You start sweating. Yeah, exactly. And you couldn't go on a holiday or it was always their agenda. So, um, so, and the whole dot-com thing was going on and I said, right, uh, I think I could. It was interesting actually. It was late 90s, I guess. This is, this is just turn, turn of the century. This yeah, is yeah. 2000. Yep. And what I was seeing with my clients in marketing is they really wanted all the branding, they wanted all of the stuff. Remember, I come from a really strong background in marketing and they really wanted all of that. But they didn't want to pay for it because, yeah. you know, what it's like, it's like, what do you mean it's going to cost me this? Or they use a marketing plan as a shopping list. Undervalued marketing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. over and over. And I understood why because it's expensive and the outlay, the return might come in two years' time. We're building a body of work. We're building the brand essence. And so I used to do these incredible marketing plans and they kind of pick the eyes out of it and go, oh, Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, you know, and it's a shopping list. And so I knew that small business – want marketing but don't have the means to pay for it. They want a brand. So really if you think about what I've done at Red Balloon, it's a marketplace. I gave an industry a brand and they never have to pay for this incredible marketing that we do for them unless they get a customer. And small business will pay for a customer because it's guaranteed. They never, it never costs them a cent until, you know, and we just take a clip of the ticket. We're like an agency, like a travel agency. But you build a marketplace. So I you you, you match vendors with buyers or consumers. Yeah, exactly. We find audiences. Yep. We deliver customers to small businesses. So that, that, that was that the genesis of Red Balloon? Like it, it, yeah. I mean, it, it's that's a marketing what, company. But did you, can you remember the day? I mean, before I go to the break, I, want, I, want to, I actually want to ask you, do you remember the day you thought, no, I'm going to, this, this Red Balloon Marketplace, I can actually do this? I mean, do you remember the day you thought about it? Or Yeah. It was actually a client of mine's idea and I was doing all the marketing for him in his business and the tech rec had gone on and he goes, oh, my gosh, I think – and he was a Australian subsidiary from the UK. He said, I think they're going to close me down. He goes, I've got to find something else to do. He said, I found this catalogue and call centre business called Red Letter Days in the UK and he goes, I think we could do it online. And uh, so we were going to go into business together, you know, speaking of business partnerships, and we started doing all the work. And then his business offered him a management buyout for a dollar of which he's going the to business, which he took. And so he went off with that and kind of left me holding the baby and just, you know, off he popped. And he, you know, when you start a business, it's all hands on deck. Totally. And he was MIA. So that wasn't going to work. And then at that point, uh, my husband, um, at the time, you know, said, well, you can't hold half of it if you're not just doing nothing. And so he came up with some ridiculous valuation. And we we're sitting around in my backyard. We we're still working from home there. And, you know, he came up with some ridiculous valuation. And he said, so, you know, you have to buy me out and it's this amount. And, and I said, I accept. Um, you can buy me out for that because I'm sick of this. This is, sorry, this is your husband said that? or Yeah, my husband's. So my husband, myself and yeah. he were sitting there. Yeah. We're saying we want to buy you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says you can buy me out and I can't remember the next number but let's say it's millions. Like yeah. it was a stupid number. And I said, not a problem. I will sell to you for that number. You buy me, yeah. You buy me out. Yeah. Absolutely fine. And, and go, did blah, 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 blah. And then I stood up. 
walked away and my husband just said to him, she's serious, she's so over it, two small kids, she's working 20 hours a day, she's over it, we're out, You're, we're done, and walked away from the table. And he bought you out? No. No. What happened? He dropped his price. He dropped his price. Because, of course, he didn't want the business. So you bought him out. We bought him. Yeah, but you bought him out for the right price. For the right price. Yeah, so uh, it was a bit of like Russian roulette. I mean, they call it um, Russian roulette in the contract. So, like, I didn't know, but I was over it. You offer me, and and if you don't accept, (laughs) I offer you, but if you don't accept, I have to buy you. uh, You have to buy me. So, like, that's that's that old Russian roulette rule. And that was quite clever at the time. Um, Didn't realize how clever I was. (laughs) But you, well, your husband, someone worked it out because. no, no, but I was serious. I was like so done. I was exhausted. Yeah. People forget. But it was know. real though. That's it what worked. Yeah, yeah. So you, you bought Red Balloon. What's called Red Balloon? Yeah, always yeah. Red Balloon. It I was, named the business. Yeah, what's called Red Balloon. So yeah. you bought out 100%. No, he still had a little tag along for a while. We got rid of that. And then uh, Peter, my husband, had 50% of the business and I had 50% of the business. And then? Well, we owned it in joint. And it? then you ran Red Balloon, which basically just describe Red Balloon being a marketplace, but describe, give, give us a little bit more detail on what it did. So Red Balloon is a gifting business, yep. but instead it of was, giving somebody, yeah. somebody a physical gift, yep. you give them an experience, yep. so an activity, and it could be anything from chocolate walking tours to, um, you know, jet boat on the harbour. So yeah. we have 2,282 experiences. Th- uh, then or no, now, 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 now. We launched with 50. We yep. launched with 50 and only in New South Wales. Um, and I guess I just didn't at the time understand, A, what it would take, B, the potential, the scale and, and what we've now delivered and the impact we have uh, economically on community. I want, I want to go to the break. When we come back for the break, I want to say, I want to ask you what happened to Red Balloon. Yeah. Um, I know you sold it. You just sort of did other things for a while, some famous TV shows. Mm-hmm. And then um, – but now – then I want to get to where we are now, where you are now. Um, yeah, which is the, the big, big red – The big red – Exciting story. Yeah, yeah. but I, I want to hear how you got back into that. So we'll just go to the break and we'll come back. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We're back from the break and I'm with Naomi Simpson and we talk, we just sort of went, we got to where she was the 100% owner of Red Balloon, her and her husband. And, uh, and then I, I do want to talk about, go through 
what actually happened after. Because after a little while, and it was a very successful business, very well known. I remember it at the time when it launched. I remember the, the I remember the concept. I know it was a marketplace. Um, it made sense because, and there weren't many marketplaces around the time. I mean, not online marketplaces. Um, and to, I'm a big believer, a big fan of marketplaces because of the way the internet works. In your case, you weren't really delivering the experience. Other people were delivering the experience. So, you know, the inventory was coming from somewhere else. The content was coming from somewhere else. It was great for them because, um, you know, I go on to Red Balloon and I get to see, it's an advertising point for them, I get to see all of these people's businesses and what they offer and it was a great place. I mean, you brought traffic. You, you deliver traffic and that, that requires a fair bit of marketing. But what happened to Red Balloon? I mean, you didn't stay there that long, did you? No. So I was the CEO for 10 years mm-hmm. um, and we um, – so I was in business with my husband. How's that work? Oh, uh, yeah. That's a big conversation. Um, it was it was all right in the beginning. It was fun. It was energetic. Everything was going well. But then our relationship began to deteriorate because we just had a different value set and we were going in different places. I was learning so much. And in, in you talk about in relation to business or just no, personally. personally? Our relationship was just – we had – different aspirations, what was important to us, a different value set. And I was learning, learning, learning. I'm going, this, that and the other thing. And I think also he was getting sick of people going, oh, Naomi this, Naomi that, Naomi this, blah, 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 whatever. So we uh, owned the business Did you grew together. apart? Is that what we, we, we grew apart. Because of the, the business? Bu- both. Yeah. Um, uh, he said, I remember, he, I remember we were at a friend's dinner and he goes, oh, we're ready to kind of retire a bit and we're going to buy a property down at Kangaroo Valley, you know, in rural rural New South Wales. And I, that was the first I'd heard of it. You know, I thought my leadership trajectory was on the up and up and up. And, uh, and I was like, wow, that's news. I didn't know about that. So we weren't really communicating about shared future and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, our marriage broke down. It was actually... Conscious uncoupling, I think they thought, call it now. And it wasn't that awful. Like, we just knew we were going in different directions. And so, our lawyers, I think, said, that's the fastest uncoupling I've ever seen. And we just were like, you know, it's all easy peasy. It's fine. But is it, but, but for people listening to us who make, may perhaps sitting and making a decision to go into business with their partner or, the, or a family member or something like that, is there something that you've got to be aware of? Oh, my goodness, yeah. yeah. So, this is the point. So, the, our, Personal relationship was relatively easy to uncouple. It was hard with our children. You know, it is it is the worst time, even when it's a it's a you know joint agreement. Don't worry, it's- three times, okay, <laughs> three times. Right, you know, we all know that it's a, it's a horrendous time. But you know, if we were going to separate, we did it as adults, yep. and the kids were protected; they were safe. Uh, we never used them as weapons, and we we so you know, I thought we were very good. It's difficult. It's complex. It's really difficult. The thing that everybody here who's thinking about uh, going into business with a husband, a sister, a partner, you, uh, you know, whatever, please think about how you're going to get out of this. Yeah. Think about the exit, mm. and if something happens, because. Mm. We didn't go into this thinking it was going to be X, but we could not work together. The way that we work is completely different. And at some point I just saw this, you know, I had always been the CEO. I had always been the founding director. It was my business as it were, but he was a shareholder. But I was driving that one. It was all about, you know, um, my marketing and this, that and the other thing. And at some point I saw an email from him saying executive chairman. Mm. I'm like, I beg your pardon? 
So it's, it's the whole time you, you probably didn't realise that he had aspirations or at least he was feeling something or other. Yeah. And, and they'd, see, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, He'd always been the CFO. Yeah, but, and, and, but it's, it's, it's interesting the difficulty that we have when people's personalities start to develop and unravel a little bit. And we never know what they are. It's, it's so, I mean, I get criticised often for saying, if you are entering into partnership with anybody, but if in particular if it's a you know your a loved one or someone you have a, another relationship for with, make sure that the exit is already planned. Yeah, have before to, you go into business with them, have an agreement. You got to have an agreement because it's nine times out of ten something goes wrong, and you know what the deal is, and you know if there's a problem, it's, it's it unravels nicely. Yeah, in accordance it's with the much better to have this conversation when you're going in. Yeah, yeah. Now how are you going to get out? Yeah, it's that simple. Any, any. It's not uh, ruthless. Any it's share, any shareholding. Yeah, and it's not ruthless. No, no. It's it's and normal. As it happens. What happened was we ended up having what's called a cold war shareholders agreement, which means unless we both agreed on something, nothing happened. And so he refused to sell to me, and I couldn't do the same deal that yeah, I did. He knew that worked. <laughs> used that one up, and he just refused. And for, so for six and a half years, you had a passive shareholder. We were in a boardroom together. Oh my god! It was so on the personal stuff. It was all great. The kids were safe. Everything was yeah, good. Yeah. Separated nicely. The business, no. And he just said, "I'm." And it's such a wonderful business, and it makes great money. And it's how long is this going for? Six and a half years. Wow. So we went from 10 years in business together, separate and divorce, and then for six and a half years. Uh, at the 10-year part, I stopped being the CEO. And I think that that was good on many fronts because you kind of want different viewpoints, external, often entrepreneur can get so inwardly focused, you're not getting enough, you know, how am I learning from different industries and so forth. So I didn't actually think it was bad. But what happened in the boardroom was um, – very sad and tragic is who that, took over though he, he did so I had no definitely not uh, we had a CEO Gemma uh, Fastnidge she joined as the CEO she'd come up through the business for, you know so she moved from being general manager into CEO so you know you could say I had a secession plan she went on maternity leave and then we had another backup and then she went on a maternity leave and then we went to market so I had two internal and then an external and the external just didn't have any understanding of the idiosyncrasies or and what we saw was top line for seven years, top line just stayed the same and as soon as that external came in, operational expenses were going through the roof. Yeah, so your margin dropped. Margin dropped and at some, he came to a boardroom and saying, we're going to lose money. I said, in 17 years we've never lost money. How can you be losing money? He's, he's started on CFO. Um, well, there was externals. No, no. We both went to the boardroom right. to become independent. We got an independent chair and so forth. And so, you know, I was in a boardroom and people would, the chairman would say, she's just being the emotional founder. Of course, bloody emotional. You know, this is an amazing business and what's happening to it? You can be emotional. There's nothing wrong with being emotional. No. If you're pissed off with something, that's an emotion because yeah. you're pissed off with something's not working the way it should be working. It wasn't that I was teary, by the way. No, it's yeah, but I'm just crying. But, but, I was going, oi, oi, you know, and I was being, I, I would say, I was really just be, completely passionate about, it. no. And it, they would come with these ideas, and I'd say, but at our core, we're about experiences. Why would we do a dropship stuff business? We're an experiences business, and the, and. Chairman would say, you've got to listen to uh, management, otherwise you won't have management. I'm like, 
I'll listen to them if the numbers tell me I should listen to them. Yeah. If the numbers aren't there, you don't listen to them. What did you do? Did you sell out or did you stay no, in? No, no, no. I owned half. Yep. And my ex-husband owned half. Yep. Um, and we had management running the business. And, um, but and it was running down in value. It's running down in value and dividends aren't coming the way that they used to and all of those sorts of things. So, um, Did you bid him? Did you go and bid him then? So I, he said, no amount of money you will ever be able to buy, buy me out, ever. No amount of money. I'm, I'm like, oh, my From goodness. you. From me. Yeah. And he said, and I knew. Was he, he saying you'll never buy me out? You'll never buy me out. Yeah. And I also knew that he'd probably prefer to put it in the ground than me have it, which is an awful thing to say. Yeah. And, um, but as it happens, a great friend of mine who I'd known for years, business friend, we'd been in, um, you know, forum groups together, entrepreneurs organization and YPO, and he'd just done his ma- a massive global exit in Europe for his business that he was running, came back to Australia, was being offered all sorts of big gigs. And I would tell him what's going on. He goes, oh, shit, come on. And I'd say, no, no, seriously. So the best thing I ever did was put David on the board of Red Balloon as my alternate because what – David being your mate from Europe. David Anderson being my mate from Europe who had a bit of time on his hands and he went into that boardroom and he said, oh, my God, this is such an amazing business. And he'd known it for 10 years because he'd been a friend or whatever. So he knew the journey. They are going to kill this thing. And um, and so he set about um, acquiring Red Balloon. So David and I created a partnership called Big Red Group. Big Red Group then acquired Red Balloon. So I own 50% of Big Red Group. David owns the other 50%. Did your ex know that uh, you were part of Big Red Group when you were doing the acquisition? Two and a half years later. Yeah, so you, and by the way, you had no obligation to disclose it. No. Not at all. So he thought he was selling to David. He thought he was thought selling to David and a group of yeah, fir- a firm or investors, or investors and whatever. And so basically, he when he said there's no price that he would ever sell, he basically saying I would never sell to you at any price. You, yeah, name you, not yeah. Um, any. I'll sell to somebody else. Yeah, but not to you. Yeah, and David was wonderful and continues to be wonderful because. It's one thing, it wasn't just about acquiring that business. And I think this is a really important point. If this was not about my ego or even, you know, Red Balloon should survive and thrive. It was that there was such opportunity in the market that we weren't taking. So with the right business partner, which is David Anderson, and he has global vision, he's like, you know what? So many of the businesses that are marketplaces that started 10 to 15 years ago are capital poor. They're not able to get onto that state-of-the-art platforms that we're now on, what if we as, as BRG, as Big Red Group, start acquiring other businesses with new audiences? And so we rolled up- Other marketplaces. Other marketplaces. So we yep. acquired Adrenaline, acquired uh, Lime and Tonic, and we've got a bunch of other acquisitions going on. So when we came into Red Balloon, it was broken. We had to fix it. We had to transform it. What was it, the product, Broden? No, not the no. product, the people, the systems. Nothing had been done in the systems. All, my, all required money add-ons, too. add-ons. They'd created new sub-brands. We had to just clean it up. It's no different to what happened when Steve Jobs came into Apple. And I remember Steve Vamos, who was the CEO here yep. at the time, and they had Newton and they had this and all these hangers-on. And, um, and Steve just came in and said, we've got to save the mothership. 
And it was the same thing. We've got to save the mothership. So we set about um, transforming um, and um, and fixing this beautiful business, giving it the capital and the trajectory that it warranted, and then started acquiring others. It was about changing the platform, though. I mean, yeah, yeah we had to do. A you mean, mean the, the the interaction of how the platform worked with the, yeah, the yeah, marketplace? Because, because it was old technology yeah. on old systems, and we've gone state of the art with you know Salesforce and got all these clouds and using AI for our all of our marketing and really sophisticated uh, customer retention. So can programs. I just just for our audience' sake? I mean, if I. And correct, correct me if I'm wrong here, but are you saying that um, you needed a, a fresh injection of capital in order to build the, the, the software platform, um, but in order to build a software platform it made sense to have other – acquire other businesses which could use the platform so you had multiple brands or marketplaces using the one platform or part or that sort of one major mainstay platform. Um, the, the objective was to – to do that, you had to put more money into it. Um, so that is the reason why maybe Red Balloon was able to be saved because Red Balloon sort of bumped in with a whole lot of other brands like Adrenaline, et cetera, all of which made sense in terms of investing more capital into one big brand new platform that had much more capability and could make have a better um, interaction with the consumer because, as you say, you can start to say to the consumer, well, why don't you think about this because we know that you like that event or you like that experience, so would you now like this adrenaline experience, which is you know getting on a jet ski or something, whatever it is, a jet boat in uh, New Zealand? Is that what we're talking about? So exactly. So the economies business, of scale. You, you got to get economies of scale, yep. and there's many businesses that get to let's say thirty or forty million turnover, especially in the e-commerce space, and they can't break through to the next level. Yep. And the reason is just because you need infrastructure. Now, given we hadn't had growth for seven years, so how are we going to find an investment partner? So we had to have a pretty big thesis and actually we were supported by the bank and the bank has been incredible for us. And it was just, um, you know, debt that allowed us to, but we had a really, really clear thesis of how we could grow this enterprise. And what we did was look for other businesses that had also begun to tailor off, couldn't invest capital in technology, couldn't stay state of the art. And now, for instance, we have the data on pretty much what a lot of Australians are doing and we know that you might use Red Balloon to buy gifts for all of your team members, but then you're going to use Adrenaline because you've got people in town and you want to book it and go, so adventure and waits. Oh, actually, you're looking for a really nice private dining experience, so let's use the lime and tonic bird. So one customer can be – we can serve through completely different audiences, being there at the right place at the right time when you have that particular need, and particularly using search as a function. So you're searching for something, one of our brands will come up. But we now are able to look at that real uh, footprint, which is why we've begun to par- partner with government as government wants to go out and, and stimulate the economy because we know what people are doing and we also know how to stimulate demand is and it- we're very accountable. So, you know, you, you, if you haven't got the resources, you can't change the world. So you must get the resources to be able to well, change the world. Well, let's just talk about resources because, like, small business, medium-sized business in this country is starved of resources. I mean, they all think they can go and find an investor, but that's really difficult to do. Um, but you mentioned you convinced the bank, um, a bank. Do you mind telling us which bank it was? CBA. Okay, so you were able to convince CBA, a big supporter of business owners. I mean, that, no, that, CBA were incredible. Yeah, they're a big supporter. I mean, we one of my businesses, you know, we we use CBA some time ago to, to make acquisitions. Um, in order to build the case, though, to borrow money from a bank, and which is always debt's always cheaper than equity, 
our listeners need to know that when you're building the case to go to a bank, you can't just walk in and say, oh, look, you know, we want to make some acquisitions because we want to, and we need to borrow a half million dollars or a million dollars. The bank's, you know, nine times out of ten is going to say no to that. I mean, you need to build a really big story around the logic associated with this. I mean, your story being we're going to build um, uh, bigger, bigger marketplaces to distribute into more silos and we need a bigger platform to service those silos and we're going to get economies of scale and then you've got to have the numbers that sit behind it. And then the banks become convinced. They can be convinced of the story. You've got to have a really good story. Personally. Well, that that goes without saying that opens the door. Yeah. You won't get the door open unless they know who you are or they know something or there's something sitting behind you, some credit sitting behind you. Um, But then you've got to have a good logical story. It's got to have logic associated with it. It's no different when you talk to investors. It's got to have you've got to get them turned on. They've got to say, you know, that makes sense. Yeah, and they also don't know what they don't know. And I think this is really important. If if we want to just talk about Shark Tank for a minute, we you have to put your potential investors or your potential bankers in your world. You cannot assume that they know what you know. But they don't. They don't. Yeah. I am the world expert at experienced marketplaces. Like yeah. I'm the world experts. And people come from all around the world and ask me how I did it. And um, so that is really important. And just on that other thing, the deals that we did on air were not necessarily the deals that happened because I don't believe in taking a small business's equity. And we know for a fact that 50% of private of, of VC funds in the US, 50% are going straight to Google and Facebook. This is not how you build an enterprise mm. by just buying customers over and over again. So really it's far better and the sorts of deals I was doing is, is loan agreements. So that they were paying back principal and interest. They got some funds because, let me call myself. So it was debt. It was debt mm. because, and also you can never exit otherwise. How do you exit a small business? Yeah, so, yeah. no, no, we were far cleverer on how we structure, structured it. But the show and the premise is always about equity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we might have had a holding over a certain equity, but we also know that equity is not worth anything and, and unless the business is growing. So, no, no, we were far cleverer on how we did deals um, than so might ma- have made sense for the television. Well, a lot of our audience would uh, are thinking to themselves they want to raise, they want to raise money. Mm. They think they're going to raise equity and often the equity investor will offer a, a thing called a, con- a convertible note, um, which is debt, which can convert equity at the um, investor's will, so to speak. Um, maybe it would be just good for you to explain to our small business audiences, which is largely who listens to this, um, how investors work. I mean, you've had a lot of experience on the show, but mm. – but you've also, but probably outside of the show, to be frank with you, it's more about how you structure the entry into those businesses, and you did it through debt or yeah. maybe con notes. I don't know. Um, and you've had your own experience with Big Red Group. Maybe explain to um, our audience, you know, the sorts of things that they should expect, and how you know, are they going to get owned? Is it going to be you going to become the major shareholder and tell them what to do? I mean, like, there's all these sort of myths out there. Maybe just give us a little two-minute vignette of how it works. I mean, what, what do you look at as an investor, potential investor? I always think the best investor in a business is a customer. Mm-hmm. And that is, so understanding the business model of how money moves through a business. So in other words, if the, the challenge that many businesses have is they might be buying something, let's say from Italy, importing it to Australia, they have to pay 100%, 50% on order, 50% on ship, shipping, but they're not being paid by their retailer, let's say, for another. And they could be the working capital required could be 180 days. Yep. I think that the last year represents an opportunity for small business to say not good enough. We are not going to no longer 
operate in these terms where work, our money, we never see our money because we're always in this working capital. Especially if they're growing fast. Especially if they're growing fast. So I think that that's really um, an important piece is to understand how the money is moving through your enterprise. Secondly is, you know, con notes or or loans. Um, There's all sorts of different places to find those, but... The most important thing, so people think, oh, I want to go and raise money, but also that often gives people a voice. And if you don't have shared values and shared alignment with potential investors, like I, I know it sounds awful, but if I didn't like them and think I could work with them, why would I do an investment? Yeah, I'm totally. not sure, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had some founders who just couldn't listen. I'm like, look, I've been around for a very long time. One of the reasons why you want me on your team rather than a bank, is because of the mentoring, the advice and the support that I will give you. So, um, But if you're out of alignment, and I've seen too many businesses just think that raising the capital is the – look at Just me, give me like, your money. Yeah, look at me, I've just raised the money. And if you read it in Smart Company every time, they've just raised that money. I don't see the same number of articles coming out about look how much I returned to my investors or look how Mm. much I got for them in terms of return. And I think that there is a fundamental disrespect often for that. It's like, oh, look at me, I got the money. No, no, no. You have the opportunity now to create something incredible because somebody chose to support you. Businesses looking for investors and or debt, whether it be through a bank or, you know, through investors lending you money, you need to listen to that um, because you've You've got to include the investor in the journey. The, the investor's got to feel like some sort of simpatico with what you're proposing and they need to feel comfortable with you. Otherwise, I'm, I'm the same as name. There's no way in the world if I don't feel comfortable with you as an individual, will I give you the money. I don't care how good your business is. If I think it's going to be a punish, uh, I'm, I, I can't be bothered. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to think, no, no, no. Even if you've got the world's best business, I won't do it. Mm. I just won't do it. It's too yeah. hard. Yeah. Um, and you're right. If I... I'd rather lend you the money and I know that there's a term on it. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to pay me a return. I'm going to get a, a yield, yeah. which is better than what I get in the bank at the moment. Yeah. And I know that it's, you're going to pay me the whole lot or something's going to happen um, in two or three years' time, yeah. you know, as opposed to – or, I, or I, I might have the opportunity to convert into equity if I want to. And, and we, we are therefore also better for them because they're left with their equity and they totally and they get to make the choices yeah. about their business and about where they're going. I don't want to join your board. No. I'm happy to help you. Yeah. If you ask, but I, I if I and if I like you. Yeah. I mean I don't, I don't want to sound condescending, but I've got to be able to sit down and talk to you. Yeah, yeah. I got to have a conversation. If you want to have a cup of coffee, we can have a chat. But if I don't like you, and I think oh my god, this person I don't trust them or I don't like their attitude or whatever it is. There's just no way. I just won't get involved in because there's not that many investors here either. No, and and it's a small. It is a small market, and everybody knows everybody. Yeah. And you know, the, for those people who think, "Oh, great, I got the cash," they spend it on flash offices or whatever they spend it on, and then it's gone, and then they go and do another raise. Oh no! No, people work that out in a second. Everybody thinks they want to be in business. It's been, totally. It's long and hard, isn't it? You it, know, it never stops. And never stops. I'm 65. Like I'm still, you know, I'm still doing it. I'm still in the guts of it all. Yeah, yeah. And it, it changes. The market changes all the time. And yeah. like what I thought I had nailed three years ago is I'm starting all over again at yeah. the moment. Like and at uh, 20 years since I started Red Balloon, and yeah. uh, four years in Big Red Group. So, um, and it's new. It's sort of it's funny because you know people would look at you and say, "Wow, she's done it all better." But you're only four years in a big, big red I'm only group. four years. That's a baby. I know. And we're the – so we, are, we assess our success based on the velocity of serving customers. 
And when uh, you speed to market, do you mean like? Yeah, no. When we were um, just red balloon, we were serving a customer every two and a half minutes. Right. And we have an aspiration to serve an experience sustainably somewhere on earth um, every second by 2030, like every second. So how do you go from two and a half minutes to every second? Because every second, apart from the fact we're billions of dollar business, they're customers to to our small business community. So, and they want customers, you know, because they can invest in infrastructure and grow when they know they've, they've got five years worth of customers coming their way. So it's really important for them when they're having banking conversations, should I buy a new jet boat? Well, I know I've got guaranteed income. They've given me this much income for this long and it's going to continue. So they so go to the bank with your data. Yeah. They go, they, with, with your their bookings. Future, with their future yep. bookings. So that's a really important number. Uh, but last qu- quarter, and, and you've got to understand the first quarter of any calendar year for us is really quiet. Our biggest quarter is quarter four. The first quarter, we, we were serving experience every 32 seconds. Like that's the growth in four years. It's 32 seconds. Um, for From the, two and a half minutes to yeah, 32 seconds. For the, 40, um, for the 48 hours prior to Christmas and through into Christmas Day, we were serving experience every two seconds. Is, is that because of COVID, do you think? Is, is that a rebound or something? I think it's because we're so fabulous, clearly. Everybody Both. wants experiences. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. People, uh, they want a trusted brand. Yep. We're trusted. Yep. They want to know they can get a booking. Yep. Try getting a booking directly. It's really hard. They want to use our booking systems. Yep. If something uh, all of a sudden goes into lockdown again, well, who do they call? They just get onto our systems to change their booking date. You know, it's really – so we've created the systems that really support people. Not to say – And refunds. And refunds and all of those things. Because, I mean, that's where the trust comes in. Like if I book and uh, New South Wales government closed me down and I can't go to Byron Bay, for example, for the experience, um, I want to make sure – I want to know that I'm going to get my dough back or I'm going to get back what I'm entitled to get back, whatever that is. And I need all a trusted that. brand. I need someone who's going to – who I know will at least stand behind it. But also, you know, if you're just going to the jet boat guy, you don't even know if he's still going to be there. Yeah. Like you've got no idea. So they trust you because they know that you curate. We curate. We handpick those experiences. You handpick the experiences. You're not going to put them in – you're not going to put them with some guy with a – you know, goal tooth and – Oh, we've got an 11-point checklist of, you know, a quality assurance program from um, public liability insurance, COVID safe. We've got – all of these. So you check all that stuff oh, out of, of yes, for the of experience provider. Yeah, they don't yeah. get our brand unless. And do you rank them, amazing. or does the consumer rank them? Is the ratings? Crowd, crowd, crowd. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's TripAdvisor style. Yeah. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's very cool. It's so, a destination. Like people just can cruise around that website forever and create their bucket list, and then just start ticking them off. So, and, and then in terms of, I mean, I can see where, for example, um, post. Christmas 2020 when um, the Northern Beaches got locked down, um, the recovery period after that when it was reopened by the New South Wales government um, was quite critical. I can see why the government might be saying to you and the Hunter Valley and those sorts of areas, the government might be saying to you, could you help us here? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, so the Dine and Discover program in New South Wales has been incredible. We've yep. only been in market for a, a couple of weeks and we know this is driving customers for businesses everywhere. Um, 80% new customers, more than 1,000 redeemed in the first day. Really? It is delivering results for our community. And so – the thing is, this is what, you know, back to your question, government needs to work hand in hand with private enterprise. Yep. We have the skills, we have the technology. So we're working with Tourism Australia. Tourism Australia is now focused on Australia, never been before, but they can they, they can do big brand ads and so forth. They know about hotel rooms. 
They know about flights, but where does the real economic driver happens? In what people spend their money on when yeah, they're, when in they're desti- there, when they're yeah. in destination. Yeah, yeah. And what so, am I going to do when I get there? So, but we can report back to government and say, "You spent X, we delivered Y." Economic impact is between three and ten times the value of the ticket, depending on where it is. So, if it's in city, it's about three times the fine. If you're going in the Hunter Valley, it's ten times. So we know for a hundred bucks spent with us, it ends up as a thousand dollars in community, and we're very transparent about that, and it makes sense. So therefore, that's what we want from government is to work hand in hand with private enterprise to to get people out and doing things, and it, and that all creates economic growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if they had have just stuck with tourism, which most of them do, of putting up a you know little thing in the concierge and in a directory, no, no, we find them new audiences like our. Our B2B business, our, our corporate clients are very big. You know, lots of corporate Australians want to support um, bushfire recovery, drought recovery, flood recovery. Well, they don't know how to do it. Just buy a ticket and, and here's the regions that are in recovery. Off you go. Go, go and take a ticket. So we, we help with, with businesses who want to support small businesses as well but don't know how to. We're a conduit. We make it really easy for them. Yeah, because, again, the whole concept of marketplace is extraordinarily powerful. Yeah. I mean, I was, you, it's a good business. Yeah, I was talking to one client and this client was incredible and um, in the sense of obviously Victoria had a horrendous year last year. Yeah. And um, what we did first of all with our suppliers is go back and say, is there anything you can do virtually, in-home experiences? Or when you say suppliers, you mean vendors? Our, 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 the our people who are on your marketplace, our yes. experience suppliers. And so um, one of those in Melbourne was a, is a chocolate-making experience and they said, we could do these chocolate, world chocolate experiences in a box. And, um, and they said, oh, yeah, we could do that. That's really amazing. Well, through COVID, um, honestly, was so hard for our Victorian partners over and over again. We got a corporate sale for 40000 of these world chocolate, $40,000 worth of these chocolate-tasting experiences. And the day that my colleague Toby (laughs) called her and said, oh, by the way, can you do the customised this? i got a $40,000 order for you. She just wept and wept and wept. And she said, I called the administrators this week. You've saved my business. Wow. And that's the power of partnership. It's the power of marketplaces. It's what we do for small business. She doesn't have to worry about bidding on words and things on Facebook because our little clip of the ticket, the cost to acquire a customer now through those big networks, when you're not an expert in those things, one day you spend five bucks, you get a customer. Next day you spend 10, you get none. none. What happened? Oh, they changed the algorithm. What's that algorithm? Usually I'll, I'll ask my guests, and uh, thank you very much for being my guest today, um, if they have a question for me because I'm doing all the questioning. I'm asking all the questions. Do you have anything you want to ask me? What do you see now? What do you see the opportunity for Australia? For Australia as a, in a national sense? Yeah, for national. our economy and for small business. What do you see for small business? I see with the government's acquiescence, I see um, that a greater, there is a far greater awareness now of by Australian made or Australian provided in terms of service or experiences in your case. Um, as opposed to always be defaulting to overseas. And um, I see it from a whole number of points of view. One, I I see it as a national interest that we should support our own country. I I think that's important because, not because I'm trying to be nationalistic, but because I think that in order for me to survive, I need the whole country to be going well. Mm -hmm. That's one. Two, um, is a reliability factor. 
um, I know if it's locally produced, that is in Australia, I'm more likely to get it on time because, you know, freight these days, particularly if it's coming from overseas, is a drama. It's a major drama. I like the idea of provenance. Um, I know the provenance of whatever is coming out locally. So, And I think Australians are becoming far more aware of provenance. Overseas have been really aware of Australian provenance for a long time. They love the provenance of what gets produced in Australia and, you know, because they, they can see the whole chain. We've never really thought about um, how good our stuff is relative to everybody else, how safe it is, how, how um, clean. clean, how well read it was, et cetera, whether it's food or just normally locally manufactured stuff, leather. Um, so I, th- I see lots of things have come out of COVID that make Australian made or Australian produced or Australian sponsored really attractive. And therefore, I think it's something we should hone in on. So I see the big opportunity for Australian made. It's a big deal for me. Australian made, Australian produced, both from every point of view. I don't see and, – and I think also globally everyone's going to, over time, will love Australian made. Mm. I, I really do. Naomi Simpson, thanks very much. It's been awesome. I, mean, I really enjoyed my, my chat with you. Um, and what's interesting is that you come at it from a lot of different angles. Um, it's What I'm hoping that our audience has seen here is that um, Naomi Simpson is not just the red balloon person, like the girl who walks around in red shoes and red dress. She's a lot more to her. Hell, a lot more to her, and that's what I was hoping to draw out of this discussion. And um, thanks for sharing and being so generous. So my pleasure. Lovely to catch up. Thanks for listening to the Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley, and production assistants Jonathan Leondis. 